On February 12, 2014, a massive sinkhole suddenly opened up underneath the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. The sinkhole gobbled up eight Corvettes, but fortunately did not injure anyone as it opened up at 5.39 in the morning. Following this event, an international media frenzy brought this story to hundreds of millions of people around the world as people were fascinated about the story of vintage sports cars falling into a massive sinkhole. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. This is episode 59 of the podcast, titled The Sinkhole That Gobbled Up Eight Corvettes. It's a, a companion podcast to last week's podcast, number 58, which introduced the topic of sinkholes as I traveled around neighboring West Virginia. If you haven't listened to episode 58 yet, it will give you more of a background about the physical landscapes in which sinkholes and caves tend to form. In summary, they're called karst landscapes, that's spelled K-A-R-S-T, and generally contain a lot of limestone underground. You can learn more about that in episode 58. You know, I was traveling around West Virginia looking at sinkholes, and I thought I could not pass up this opportunity to go over to neighboring Kentucky and get this story about the sinkhole under the Corvette Museum. So this podcast was recorded live at the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. The first interview is with Mariah Hughes, Media Relations and Marketing Produ Production Manager at the museum. We recorded this content in the Sky Dome room of the Corvette Museum, the very location where the sinkhole opened up. The room showcases numerous vintage Corvettes along the edges of the room and marks a yellow line on the floor to show the outline of the subterranean cave and a red line to mark the outline of the sinkhole. The room also contains a window to look down into the cave and displays one of the Corvettes that was demolished by rocks and boulders when it fell 30 feet into the sinkhole back in 2014. Next to this room, a massive educational exhibit tells the story of the sinkhole by videos, signage, and interactive displays. You can even stand in a room that has a 3D animation of the sinkhole, and it feels like the cars are falling down on you when you, when you experience this. They've really spared no expense to share the story of the sinkhole and educate visitors about the science behind them. All this is embedded within the larger story of the amazing history of the Corvette. If you're new to the podcast, everyone, GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, before we get into this episode, a quick favor to ask of our listeners, we'd really appreciate if you'd subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Hey, so after the interview with Mariah Hughes, Chris Groves, University Distinguished Professor of Hydrogeology at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green, will join us to share perspectives on the science behind sinkholes, context on how rare the Corvette sinkhole was, and some innovative methods people can use to detect potential sinkholes and caves under their feet. So come along to the National Corvette Museum with me to hear the story of this iconic car and learn more about the sinkhole that opened up in 2014. Hey GeoTrekkers, we're here at the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I'm with 
Mariah Hughes, Maya, Mariah, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. Anytime, thank you so much for being here. We're glad to have you. Mariah, so you grew up in Western Kentucky on a farm near here, huh? I do. I grew up in the area, familiar with the area, familiar with cave systems and growing up in cave country my entire life. That's right. I see a lot of like horse farms, a lot of agriculture, but like you said, you don't have to spend much time here and you start seeing signs for Mammoth Cave and other cave systems. There's a lot of caves and open ground in this part of the world. They are. Mammoth Cave National Park is just about 30 minutes up the road from us here at the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. So it is just right up the road. There's about 370 miles or so of discovered cave there. And you know, frequently visit the national park and glad to be from a national park area. That's amazing. I'm sure you spent a lot of time there growing up on school field trips and stuff I like did. that. I did. Almost every school field trip was to the, to the Mammoth Cave National Park. We're here at the National Corvette Museum and you said that's a place that you also visited quite a bit before you worked here, right? Yeah, it was a great place for field trips too. Just about 45 minutes from my elementary school and my high school and frequently visited the NCM for several different field trips and other events in our facility rental spaces too. Yeah, you do a great job here with PR. This is my first time at the museum. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by how amazing it is, not only with current Corvettes that people are picking up to buy off, you know, right off the lot, but also the history of Corvettes. And uh, what's your favorite thing about working here at the museum? It's something fun and new and different every single day. Whether you are a gearhead or not, you can appreciate the history and the story that is Corvette. There's something new and exciting to learn, whether you like shoes and the story of our 1983 Corvette, the individuals who inspired it or the women and men who worked on it. I thought it was really cool seeing one of the original Corvettes from 53 and yes. it, it kind of showing the insides of it and what that looked like and then you explained to me how it's changed over time. Mm -hmm. The different, I guess we're on the eighth generation, huh? We are. We're on the eighth generation of Corvette and that started the 2020 model year. Oh, that's awesome. A lot of great history. I'd, I'd recommend for anybody to come to the National Corvette Museum. It's a, it's a great educational area and just great if you're into sports cars or just into national history as well. Mm -hmm. Mariah, you shared how the National Corvette Museum is not just for gearheads and it's not just car history, it's American and world history. Could you explain a little bit about like how this ties into global history? So I'm gonna take you back to the beginning of the Corvette. It was pre, you know, right after World War II, post-World War II, and the American soldiers had just gotten back from overseas and they were used to seeing these two-seater European sports cars like the MGTC Roadster. When they got back stateside, we didn't really have anything like that here in the U.S. So after talk and conversation of we need a two-seater sports car, Chevrolet jumped right on it with Harley Earl leading the charge. And Myron Scott is another familiar name. You may know him as the inventor of the Soapbox Derby. was working for Chevrolet Marketing at the time. And they were looking for a name to even go with Corvette. And that came straight out of that C encyclopedia in that meeting. And the word Corvette has two meetings. It was, all, it was also a small French battleship that was used to weave in and out of the larger battleships during the previous war. It was, you know, the Corvette, the Chevrolet Corvette, this small, fast piece of two-seated sports car machinery that has grown to become America's only sports car. So it seems like the concept for it and the name both came out of Europe around World War II and mm -hmm. the GIs, the soldiers coming back to the States saying, wait, why don't we have a two-seater sports car? And yes. and we, we ran with it, right? Mm -hmm. We did. And thankfully, Corvette's been running for now 70 years for the 2023 model. No, that's really cool. And that, that helped us you know, see for folks that come here to the museum that it's not just, again, car history. This is a piece of global history that can help them piece together how the, how the world works and how even mm -hmm. World War II history relates to our, our lives today. Yes. 
So Mariah, let's talk a little bit, maybe we can move over this way. I know we have some other visitors here today. Um, let's talk a little bit about this sinkhole. So explain the sinkhole story here at the Corvette Museum. What happened, when did it happen, and kind of walk us through that story. So the museum was built in 1992 is when they did the groundbreaking and it opened on Labor Day weekend of 1994. When the engineers and the building team were testing the ground to make sure that it was a safe place to build, they never actually hit any of the cave, not the cave ceiling, not any portion of the cave. So we built the museum here and even expanded on it in 2009 with our expanded Corvette store, the Stingray Grill, our museum delivery section, our conference center, and so on and so forth. On February 12th of 2014 at 5.39 in the morning, something set off the motion detectors in the security system. Now we didn't know what that was until first officials and responders arrived here on the scene, but it was actually a 35 feet deep sinkhole that had opened and swallowed eight of the museum's cars on display. Wow, that's amazing. So this opened up, you know, in the pre-dawn hours. It was kind of not in the middle of the night. It was just before mm -hmm. that morning shift. So when that first person discovered it, what did they find when they came to the museum? Mm -hmm. I think you said at six o'clock in the morning, yes. 21 minutes after the sinkhole mm -hmm. opened, a staff came, what did they see? So uh, Betty Harson from our library and archives came in. She saw a dark room. There was no power. It was hazy. It looked like there was smoke in the room. So she stepped out she thought there was a fire. She called 911 and come to find out when the first responders and officials arrived on the scene, it was not a fire. It was a sinkhole that had opened inside of the museum's exhibit space. That's amazing. And like you said, eight of the cars went down with the sinkhole. Yes. And what, what amazed me when I heard this story, y'all kind of inspected it, had engineers on the scene, mm -hmm. and, and really did all those inspections really in, in that first 24 hours. And I think y'all were only closed like one day, right? One day, yep. We were open the next day taking tours. Of course, it was a limited visit to the museum. You couldn't actually go into that room quite yet of where the sinkhole occurred. Later on, after more inspections were done, more safety checks were done, you could, if you signed a release form, walk into the sky dome up to a very extended back barrier to see what the room actually looked like. Mariah, when I told some folks I was coming here and they were like, wait, what are you doing? You're like a weather and disaster scientist. Why are you going there? I told them the story. Everyone had the same question. So did they save the Corvettes? Like what happened to the Corvettes that fell? Everyone wanted to know. All eight Corvettes were extracted from the sinkhole. Three were restored back to their most original state. And that was the one millionth Corvette, the 1962 Tuxedo Black Corvette, and the 2009 ZR1 Blue Devil. The other five cars, unfortunately, were beyond repair and are still in their damage. And if y'all come here to the museum, there's actually one on display that was crushed. I mean, I knew that there'd be damage, but I didn't expect to see something like that. Yes, so we are a living museum. The cars and the stories change on a regular basis here to make sure that no two visits of any individual are the same. So no matter when time you come, you have the possibility of seeing one of the eight sinkhole cars. So Mariah, it sounds like you're saying out of the eight cars that went in the hole, three were restored. Could you explain a little bit about that restoration? Yes, so three of the cars were restored. Two were completed by General Motors, and that was the 2009 ZR1 Blue Devil and the one millionth Corvette. The third car restored was the 1962 Tuxedo Black Corvette that you see right behind us. The museum's maintenance and preservation team that takes care and maintains the museum's collection actually did the restoration on that vehicle in about a one-year process and unveiled it on the anniversary of the museum's sinkhole. That's amazing. When I look at that car, I would never think that that car plummeted 35 feet to the bottom of a sinkhole in western mm -hmm. Kentucky, but it looks like you know, it looks in perfect condition. Yeah, there was a little uh, big boy sugar packet that was right under the seat and even that was restored to the uh, car too. That is absolutely amazing.
Wow, Mariah, so you're explaining about how these eight cars went down, mm -hmm. three were restored, and you mentioned that there was a big boulder just outside the facility that actually crushed one of the vehicles, right? Yes, so if you visit the National Corvette Museum and you walk around the property, you look for some Easter eggs along the way. There is a very large boulder in the landscaping and a marker on it that says exactly which sinkhole car it did crush. Oh, wow, so can you imagine, I mean, just seeing the damage to that one car here on the showroom, it's like, wow, the force of a, a boulder like that coming mm -hmm. down on a car, you could see what it would pretty much total it. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, something that really stands out about your story, I heard that after the sinkhole, obviously it was a catastrophe. You wouldn't have wanted that here. You wouldn't have wanted to lose those mm -hmm. cars. And then you had to deal with getting it inspected and all these un unforeseen things. But you all kind of turned the lemons into lemonade. Can you explain a little bit about some of the positives that came after that situation? Yes, the museum's visitorship increased on a yearly basis after the sinkhole occurred. We were getting more than just car enthusiasts, gearheads, Corvette lovers, and car owners alike coming to the museum. Our audience really expanded. People wanted to see and come to the place where the sinkhole actually happened. I think that it's important for our guests now, even those that do come here after hearing about the events of the sinkhole or just now making it now that it's been several years later, to actually understand that when you're here, we're so much more than just the sinkhole. There's a newfound appreciation to those visitors who might come here just for that and an appreciation for America's sports car. I mean, we're the only museum in the United States that's dedicated to a single make and model of a car. And we're here, a car that's been now in production for 70 years. So. Y'all are very unique. I've been amazed just at the different, it, this is so kind of multifaceted. Mm -hmm. You know, we have all the history of Corvettes and then we have people picking up their brand new Corvette today to a thunderous applause of people out there, of staff out there with mm -hmm. the museum. So really cool to see all that. And y'all took the sinkhole thing and said, wait, that's not going to slow us down. No. It, if anything, it just drew attention. So mm -hmm. people could say, wait, what's this Corvette museum about? Exactly. No, really good, really good stuff. Um, do you know, as far as we were talking to you grew up in this part of mm -hmm. Kentucky there's a lot of caves around mm -hmm. a lot of them are mapped but some of them may not be is there a sense that a new sinkhole or a cave could open up anywhere in this region you know is, is there a sense among the local local population that that could happen sinkholes are pretty prominent in this area of Kentucky in south central Kentucky thankfully that only one that's open on the museum property has been of course the one in the sky dome but we feel like this is the safest place to be in Bowling Green and that we now know exactly what's under our feet but sinkholes are prominent in this area and often found yeah. on farms and neighborhoods etc it's just a part and of living in cave country you have to be aware of it right you explained because they're so prevalent around here that mm -hmm. sinkhole insurance is even offered to a lot of folks, right? It is. Whether you're a homeowner or you have equipment stored in a barn on a farm or a business, you can add on to your insurance policy for sinkhole insurance. That makes sense around here where a lot of these holes and fissures and things like that mm -hmm. may open up. You explained as well that the cave still exists underneath the museum, yes. but it's but the, the structure is safe. Can you explain what are some of those structural elements that went into keeping the structure safe despite the fact that there's a cave? underneath it. When the Skydome floor was repaired after the sinkhole occurred, micropiles were installed all throughout the entire sinkhole. So if you're not familiar with what a micropile is, best way to describe it in my opinion is if it's the same diameter as a telephone pole, but it's not made out of wood, it's an entirely steel structure. 
And do you know how many micropiles are? Are there just in general? Are there there? I'm guessing there's quite a few. Many I of them. Can't remember the exact sure. number off the top of my head right now, but there are quite a few. So these are really poles, almost like telephone poles, but they're mm -hmm. not made out of wood to kind of reinforce and support yes. the structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And if you're here at the museum, you can actually go and look down through windows and see the bottom mm -hmm. of the cave. I knew 35 feet is pretty far, but when you actually look through the windows, you're like, well, that is a big drop for a car or a person to take. So yes. really cool that you preserve that though. And you're also on the showroom there. Explain a little bit about the red and, and yellow lines that are taped to the floor. So when you visit the museum, there's two outlines on the floor in the sky dome, and those are the cave outline and the sinkhole outline. So even though the floors are paired, you know exactly where the outline of both of those things occurred. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you can actually see that. And I saw visitors kind of looking to, mm -hmm. I really like to, you know, I live in a town, Galveston, Texas, that has had a lot of history with floods. And we kind of embrace that history. We have high water marks everywhere to show people, hey, there was a flood, here's how high it got. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to, sometimes people say, well, maybe we shouldn't tell people that history. But there is something about preserving the history and saying, hey, this thing exists, but we, we documented it. We're using mm -hmm. it for education. I think that's kind of what y'all have done here. You've said, hey, this event happened. Here's why it happened. And, and then you, you've you know drawn the outline of the sinkhole in the cave, but also explained to a lot of people how how you've made the the facility stronger today, which I think is really cool. Yes, it's not just a part of our history, but we need to tell that information too. And we're going through the AAM accreditation process to become accredited institution now. So things are constantly changing here and we're looking forward to that accreditation and we hopefully receive it. You know, you guys have such a passion too for education and outreach. Mm -hmm. So let's say someone is very far from Western Kentucky and they're like, I love Corvettes. Maybe they work with a, a organization that does a lot of education. Can mm -hmm. you explain how maybe uh, you know, y'all and, and other Corvette enthusiasts could maybe come and reach mm -hmm. out to people in different parts of the country as well. So we have a Museum in Motion program here at the National Corvette Museum where several different trips, for lack of a better term, depart from either the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky, or we meet with you in other places across the U.S. So we call that the Museum in Motion. You do have to have a Corvette to go on those trips and you do need to drive that Corvette to go on those trips. But a representative from the museum will meet you in, for example, Cleveland, Ohio. We'll meet 25 Corvettes, two people per Corvette, so a total group of 50, and take you throughout the area going to different educational stops along the way while also letting you get out and kind of explore the city in places you might have never been with individuals who have the same passion that you do. Well, that's really great. And I didn't understand until I came here that y'all are really a nonprofit with a passion for education, right? Yes. So this is part of your mission, I guess, to mm -hmm. get out there and to do education, not only here in Bowling Green, but also around the country. Mm -hmm. the museum is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to preserve Corvettes past, present, and future. And if you're coming to the museum sometime in the spring of 2023, our education gallery is brand new and will be open then for students and adults of all sizes and ages to come in and learn about the different engineering and design and processes that go into making the Corvette. Even as we're here today, we see school students coming in on buses, right? So yes. they're getting a lot of, I guess, um, education about design and engineering and... Mm -hmm and art and we're definitely a stream institution which is science, technology, engineering, art, reading, and math 
I totally did those letters backwards, but you get the point, where we're here to educate on all aspects of Corvette. You know, General Motors is a company that doesn't just employ engineers, uh, staff of the assembly plant, or designers too. There's a communications team that goes into it. There's leadership that goes into it. There's obviously a financial standpoint that goes into it. So we have something of school groups and school ages of all sizes. So if you're a high school group and you're wanting to expose your students to different careers that are out there, we're a great place to stop and meet people of all different backgrounds. Mariah, how can people engage with the museum if they want to come and they want to learn about the annual calendar? Are there certain mm -hmm. events that they can come for? I mean, how if people say, hey, when's a good time to go to Bowling Green and go to the museum? What, what do you tell them? always a great time to come to Bowling Green, Kentucky. We have something going on pretty much every month. And if you want to stay up to date on the latest information, you can visit us online at CorvetteMuseum.org or follow us on social media under National Corvette Museum. Mariah, I really appreciate you taking time. This is an amazing museum. I'd recommend for anybody to come here. And again, really cool that you documented a natural hazard that happened under the museum, taking something bad and turning it into something good. Well, thank you. We're glad you came today. Thank you. Thank you, Mariah, for sharing those insights about the sinkhole event and for sharing your personal perspectives about what it's like to live with the sinkhole threat out here in cave country. A conversation with Mariah led me to have even more questions about sinkholes in this area of the world. For example, how rare is a sinkhole the magnitude of the one that opened up under the Corvette Museum in this region? And number two, what can people do to find out if a cave may be lurking underneath their home ready to open up into a catastrophic sinkhole? University Distinguished Professor Chris Groves of Western Kentucky University was able to answer these questions in an, in an interview we had after my visit to the museum. Hey everybody on the GeoTrek podcast, we're here with University Distinguished Professor of Hydrogeology at Western Kentucky University, Chris Groves. Thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Well, my, my pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Chris, I know you've done a lot of research on different things related to geology, including sinkholes, caves, all of that. Uh, Western Kentucky, we're focusing this episode on what happened there at the National Corvette Museum. You aren't that far from there, right, as far as your location? Uh, no. Um, and in fact, I was at the museum by 830 that morning because it's, it's just about three miles from here. So. Oh, wow, you're that close. So you were called over the day of the sinkhole event at the museum. Yeah, one one of the people. Um, there was uh, yeah a whole, whole bunch of people kind of kind of converged on it. Um, and um, but yeah, I had an opportunity to get over there and you know do an early assessment. So what, what was that like? Yeah, I didn't end up really working on the project that much in the end, but, but yeah, I got over. What, what was it like showing up right after it happened? Um. Well, the first thing is. Um, so, so it's it's in as I guess you saw. There's a you know, sort of a large room, you know, under the, the you know the the yellow area, you know, that's it's just a big sort of flat area with a bunch of Corvettes, and uh, and and it was it was just awesome, you know, this kind of gaping hole in the floor, and by that time it it had happened, oh, four or five in the morning, and so that was a you know a couple hours had gone by, but there was still dust, you know, I mean it, you could still tell it was very you know something was was happening, and. Um, and and I I just think awesome is really just the word. It was it was just really hard to believe, and and people were shocked, and and so um, yeah, just just taking it all in. Yeah. Chris, how did the size of that sinkhole compare to other sinkholes you've seen? I mean, was this a very large sinkhole? Was it medium? How did it relate? Yeah, um, I think a really important um, kind of aspect uh, for for understanding sinkholes, you know, generally and certainly in in uh, Kentucky, where we have a lot of them. Um, is that, well, the, the, the first thing is that that was an enormous sinkhole. You know, that, that was, 
that was very, very rare. Sure. And I think the, the first thing to understand <clears throat> is that there's essentially sort of two mechanisms, uh, you know, in, in many karst areas, including here, um, that, that, that cause these, you know, catastrophic collapse events. Um, at, at different scales. And uh, so there's the, the, the two situations, uh, one that's much, much more common that was not the case at the Corvette Museum was that you have, um, um, you know, a certain amount of soil you know, and then down some distance under the soil is the top of the bedrock and then the bedrock below that. And the thing that characterizes these karst areas is the bedrock is uh, dissolved out, you know, I, I, I used the analogy of Swiss cheese, you know, which is imperfect, but it kind of gives the sense of it. And so, but the main thing is you have all these voids, these spaces in the bedrock, you know, underneath of everything. Some of those are caves that are big enough to walk around in. Um, but the, but a, a very common situation is water, rainwater lands on the soil, <clears throat> goes down through the soil and then carries soil down into the voids below. And when that happens, when that soil washes down, now you're actually getting voids in the soil. You're getting kind of these caves as the soil is kind of going down, you know, from beneath down down into the you know in, in, into the bedrock, into the holes in the bedrock, and so you get these pockets um, in the uh, you know in the soil, and they they grow and grow and grow, and eventually they they collapse in. Now they tend to be much smaller than you know what, what you saw at the, at the Corvette Museum, um, but if they're under foundations or roads, you know they they still are a very serious problem, and and those happen all the time. What what happened at the Corvette Museum is the the other kind of situation, and this was actually a huge you know a large cave passage, actually the, the cave collapsing in. So so it's usually the soil is washed down into the cave. And then the soil forms these pockets, and those what's, that's what collapses in. In the case of the Corvette Museum, and then one other one in Bowling Green um, uh, that happened some some years ago, uh, that was of similar scale um, to to the Corvette Museum. I, I've been here for uh, 40 years, and that's that's the only two very large catastrophic collapses. Uh, the one in, in Dishman Lane was in 2002, and that was right in the middle of a road, like a four-lane four road, uh, right in the afternoon, and four cars, it just, it just, just fell in right under four cars going down the road, and, um, and they, they drove into it, and happily no one was hurt, but it, it was just, it, you know, very similar kind of scale, and that was a cave collapsing in, you know, a large cave room, just like at the Corvette Museum. So in both of those cases, it's just a large cave collapse. It's not really like a depression from soil going down into a, a hole beneath the ground. Right. It, th those were cases that um, that that it just happened to be there was large cave rooms, you know, actually within the bedrock, that the ceilings of the cave rooms came up relatively close to the surface, and it was it was just just chance, you know, as far as the buildings, you know, the you know the the infrastructure uh, being being up there, and so, but yeah, it was actually the cave, you know, a large cave room, you know, collapsing. Yeah. How often would a sinkhole, at least as big as the magnitude of the sinkhole underneath the Corvette Museum, how often would something of that size open, say, in the western half of the state of Kentucky? Um, well, well, primarily the um, it, it's it's the technically sort of the south central Kentucky is very very focused uh, cars here. Um, the um, and something that size. Um, well, like I said, I, in, in the 40 years I've been living here, there's, there's only been two. There was the Dishman Lane one and then the Corvette Museum. So, uh, so those are things that happen. They happen regularly on what you could call sort of geologic timescales, you know, over, over thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. Every once in a while, it just, it's just going to fall in. Um, but over human lifetimes, 
you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, if uh, you know, another one doesn't happen, you know, certainly in my lifetime, but, but these are just very, very rare, rare events. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like this is pretty unusual. And then let alone opening up under this showroom full of Corvettes, it's, it's, it's rare in time and then also rare in space, right? I mean, not that many. So it really, uh, maybe that's what drew so much attention to this story. Yeah. Well, and, and the good thing was, you know, it was under a bunch of Corvettes. If it was a different time, it could have been under a troop of Boy Scouts. Well, and look, I wanted to ask you about that. I remember when I was a new father, I had boy-girl twins. I remember putting them down in their crib in the, at night when they were, say, two months old, right? And they're just just watching them sleep. It's They're completely peaceful, No, not a worry in the world. But as a parent, you would do anything to protect your kids, right? If I lived down the road from the Corvette Museum when that happened, I know my first thought would be, is there a sinkhole that's going to open underneath our house? You know, um, is there, is that, is that an unfounded fear? Is that a reasonable fear? And then if so, are there things that people can do to test if maybe the ground is hollow underneath their home? Well, no, that, that's a very, well, I, I, I would say it's, it's legitimate in the sense that, you know, there, there, there is a pretty good probability. These things can happen, you know, in, you know, pretty much anywhere, you know, in, in this, this kind of geologic terrain. Um, it, I, I would say in terms of, of needing to be fear, fearful, fearful of it, um, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't get, the, you know, that, that, that worked up about it, you know, you know, like, you know, obviously if, if, you know, if a crib with sleeping kids fell into the hole you saw at the Corvette Museum, <laughs> that would be bad. The probability of that is, is just, enormous, you know, it's vanishingly small. So, so the, the you know, the, the, these are real concern, but, but it's not in, in Kentucky, it, it's not, you know, like you, you need to worry about your house falling in and, you know, like in Florida, that that happens. There, there was a number of years ago, a house fell in a sinkhole, and there was a guy in there just gone. You know, so so people die in these things, but not here in South Central Kentucky. Um, and so, um, so so the question is, what you know, what what can we do? Can we maybe you know know in advance something about whether it's going to happen? And generally, the answer is is uh, is no in in a, in a broad sense. Um, that is a very active area of investigation, you know, the people are sort of figuring out, you know, how to eliminate those hazards. And um, the, well, well, I, I say no for, for most people. There, there are, there, there's a set of um, techniques that are collected, we call it geophysics. And geophysics has to do, this part of geophysics has to do with um, using various instruments, uh, you know, like, like an x-ray, you know, down in the earth, not x-rays themselves, but different kinds of methods that would find voids or, you know, kind of map out underground, uh, you know, using electricity or, um, in fact, a very interesting one is, uh, is gravity. Um, there's, there, it turns out, you know, a very short physics lesson is that gravity has to do with the attraction between two objects that have some mass. So when you're standing on a bathroom scale, the amount that you're pressing down on it and the dial's going up depends on your mass and the mass of the earth. Okay? And so if your mass goes up, you press down harder on it. Um, now, but what happens is that the mass of the earth, you know, the other part of that underneath is not constant everywhere. It, it's different under different places. And a major thing that makes a difference of, you know, uh, you know, of, of the force of gravity at, at some point is the density of the material underneath of you. So if you have very, very dense rock, then there's more mass and it's going to be pulling down a little bit more. If you have less dense rock, um, you know, or, you know, or more soil, then it's, there's less density and it's not pulling down quite as hard. A perfect case of this is a cave because a cave is air 
And if you're standing on top of a cave, then there's a, there's a big pocket of air in there that has much less density than the limestone bedrock that would have otherwise been there. And so there are portable meters that you can kind of go across on the surface and actually measure. You can find caves because there's less gravity. You know, so, Chris, you're, you're saying you could take the weight of something and it's going to slightly be different depending on the mass beneath you. And that could show possible voids or caverns underneath your feet. Yeah, that's right. So you you actually weigh less standing on top of Mammoth Cave than, than you do, you know, in, in other national parks, I guess. Um, and and so yeah, that 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 that's done. Um, the the reason that I kind of and, and there's there's other methods, you know. Also, that's just one interesting one. Um, but really, what the the problem is, it's it's very very expensive to have it done, you know, because the equipment's expensive. You know, th- there's there's training and the uh, so so it's not something that typically homeowners. Sure. You know, there, there are cases, you know, when they're, you know, when they're building, you know, large buildings that they'll do various types of geo- geophysics, you know, and it just really depends on the, you know, the cost and the, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the risk assessments and that sort of stuff. But generally ge- geophysics is not something that for most people, you know, that they're going to invest that kind of money, you know, in, so, you know, build, building a house. If some of our listeners get on the scale after the holidays and their weight's gone up, should they sleep well at night? Does that maybe mean that the the earth below them is more solid? <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. Or, or they, they need to come back here to Mammoth Cave. We're, we're, we're trying to encourage our listeners. Don't don't worry about gaining weight. It, it, could, be, it could be slightly about the mass beneath your feet. That's fascinating. What about remote sensing and LIDAR? I mean, can could there be ways that satellites, for example, or airborne photography could measure the the, uh, the elevation of the surface of the ground and look for slight depressions or changes in the ground elevation? Yeah, yeah. There, there in fact, is a... Um a group at the University of Kentucky that's that's doing exactly that kind of research. Um, so, so as you mentioned, lidar, uh, lidar's got the limitation um, that it can't penetrate. You know, it, it you know it, it just sort of bounces off a solid object, so it can't see down into the caves. But you know, it, as as you mentioned, it's 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 a it's a way you know that um, uh, you know energy comes down and bounces back, uh, you know, to the receiver up in a plane or wherever. And you can make very, very, very highly, very accurate maps of the, you know, the, the nature of the ground surface. And there are, uh, I'm, I'm really not up, you know, on the, um, you know, sort of the, the latest details of the research. I'm, I'm aware of it, but there's a group that is working on, on LIDAR data and using artificial intelligence, you know, for LIDAR data. Because um, because it, it's kind of one of those things where it's, it's sort of sounds you know pretty doable, but the devil's in the details as many things. Sure. Uh, so 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 they're doing using artificial intelligence uh, to use lidar data to see if, if there's a way to you know sort of train you know these 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 programs to you know to kind of suss out you know places that are more. Uh, potential for for sinkholes. Do you know offhand are are different groups interested in the risk of a sinkhole opening up? Maybe insurance, uh, building and zoning, planning. I mean, is that something that really comes up as far as applications to real life? Or are they so rare that people say, well, you just can't pinpoint where they might happen? No, no, no. There's a lot lot of interest. And um, it it, it really most, the, the place that I think the, you know, just from, from, my understanding, you know, as far as like regulations, development, insurance companies and all that sort of stuff, you know, the risk assessment is in Florida, that is huge. And, you know, because Florida, like here I said, you know, like what you saw at the Corvette Museum, that's that's extremely rare. You know, that one or, you know, something like that may or may not happen again, you know, in our lifetimes. In Florida, 
those things, those big sinkholes happen regularly, and it's a very different geologic situation. Well, it, you know, it, it's similar in ways, but there's yeah. there's some geologic differences, and so so sinkhole, you know, the whole risk assessment, insurance, you know, it's a it's a huge thing down in Florida, and and here it's it's kind of on people's radars, but. But kind of, kind of in, in, you know, kind of in, in the background, I'd say. Going back to Florida, would this be generally most of the state or certain pockets geographically? Um, not, not the whole state, but, but, but certainly a, a, a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and um, the, I, I can't say right off the top of my head what, what, the, what the percentage would be, but yeah, it's a significant part of it. There's, there's just sort of different geologic you know, layers, different geologic formations. And a lot of the, you know, say, and, and I'm, you know, very roughly off the top of my head, sort of central Florida and sort of north central Florida, um, you know, or, you know, Orlando, you know, you know, some of the big urban areas, you know, are very prone to this. It covers a, a large area and there's been very big, big sinkholes down there. Chris, really appreciate your insights on this. Any, any last um, take home messages you'd like to share with our listeners about sinkholes, caves, karst landscapes? Um, no, I, I guess the, the, uh, you know, the, these are, these, these karst landscapes are really, you know, some of the, um, you know, the most beautiful, you know, the, you know, exotic, you know, just, just wonderful landscapes. Um, you know, one, one of the, you know, what I call sort of our bonus landscape is just here in South Central Kentucky, there's, there's at least, um, a, a thousand miles of, um, of K passages that have been explored. You know, so there's this whole bonus landscape. Yeah, right. And, 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 and the way I look at it, you know, if, if you know, I, I've told generations of students, if you know, if, if you just sort of popped on the earth somewhere, and you walk for 500 miles, you'd see interesting and weird things. And it's the same in this hidden landscape underneath of us right here. And so these these are just fantastic, beautiful landscapes. But at the same time, you know, there's there's a lot of environmental problems, and that's sure. you know the two sort. I I call it myself the, you know, the the risk of sinkholes is what I call the price of living in paradise. But you know, there's there's um you know, there, there's environmental challenges with water supply, you know, in karst regions, you know, both you know, quality, you know, quality of water or, or quantity of water, first of all, because the, the ground, you know, with this, again, Swiss cheese-like aspect, you know, rain lands on the surface and it just goes wherever it lands, you know, a lot sure. of places, it just goes right underground. So that means we don't have much water at the surface. So that's an issue. When it goes underground quickly, it's also carrying fertilizers. Sure, sure. Um, septic tanks, et cetera. So, so, it, so it's a two-edged sword. You know, it's it's a these are beautiful, fascinating landscapes. Uh, there, there's economic development. You know, you mentioned it in your West Virginia show about some of the tour caves. You know, in uh, sure. eastern West Virginia, those are places that otherwise don't have much, you know, much opportunities for economic development. You know, in some of those rural areas. So, so they're you know these are just the most fantastic landscapes, you know, in, in a lot of ways, but, but there's, well, there's talent. I felt like it was amazing getting underground and just being like, wow, I'm in a landscape not a whole lot of people have seen, you know, and was it, did you say there were a thousand miles of explored caves in Kentucky? Is that right? Yeah, I'd have to add them up. Um, so, so Mammoth Cave itself is, like I said, the largest known cave and, and it's, it's 400 and 26 is, is the official length now, but but it and other caves here are still being explored. You know, there and I could go on and that, but but just to talk about and and so so that's Mammoth Cave, um, the you know the world's longest cave, the world's tenth longest cave is is also parts of it are also in Mammoth Cave National Park, and so there's just hundreds of miles of this stuff, um, the um, and 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 in fact what happens is you you know you say as as far as 
the, you know, being someplace that, that few people go, you know, here in this part of Kentucky, one reason, in fact, the reason I live here and, and a lot of other people have been attracted here um, is, is for this very reason. And in Mammoth Cave, there's expeditions still every month that or you know 10 expeditions a year where people are coming from around the country and they're going they're going into the cave you know you know it's very organized like a military operation you know they'll they'll go back in there you know in in small teams and basically go to the end of exploration and pick up where the last group went off and these are places that no nobody has ever seen before that's amazing the picture just under under your feet underground you could your hiking boot could step on on a rock that no one has ever stepped on before Oh yeah, it happens. You know, well, crawling. <laughs> like, yeah, or crawling. Hey, Chris, I wanted to ask you: How many miles of unexplored cave would you guess there are in Kentucky? If you had to take a guess, could you even estimate that? Um, it, 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 it's it's hard to say. You know, the the um, you know fascinating part of it is that we know well well for for mammoth cave you know and and these other these other big caves mammoth cave just really gets a lot of attention because it's the biggest that we know about um but that mapping expedition or you know that mapping process has been going on you know essentially you know once a month since 1957 <laughs> and they're not done yet yeah so uh so there, there there's there's surely hundreds more miles um you know before it's all done um, one of the things, um, without diverging too much, one of the interesting things that's happened now is that Mammoth Cave, you know, very much of the identity, you know, of, of the cave and those of us that sort of, you know, work here with it is, is wrapped up in the fact that it's the longest known cave in the world. What turns out a thing that has just happened in 2022 is for years, you know, a number of us that, you know, keep, keep track of this sort of stuff have been watching these caves down in Mexico and that have, that have been growing, 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 you know, by exploration, uh, completely underwater, which is crazy. But it turns out now the second longest cave in the world and the fourth longest cave in the world are in Mexico near each other. And what happened in March for the first time, if they connect, they are longer than Mammoth Cave. Oh, that's interesting. What part of Mexico is that? Do you know? It, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Hundreds of miles underwater. And, and so, so the whole, the thing is that, you know, this underground world is, is still being explored. Sure. Seeing new things that no human has ever seen before. Chris, do you know offhand what, what region of Mexico that's in? Oh yeah. I was just down there yeah, in, in, in July. Yeah. It, it's uh, actually close to, if you know where Cancun is, it's, sure. you know, it's... just south of Cancun is, is Tulum, you know, another resort. And it's just, it's, it's all over, it's all underneath the Tulum. Sure. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're actually working on collaborations with them. I was just in Tulum last August for my first international hurricane chase. Yeah, the, the eye of Hurricane Grace came right over us in Tulum. But a lot of the locals that I rode out that hurricane with, they were telling me about extensive caverns and all kinds of beautiful stuff. They said, you have to come back and check that out. Chris, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. You are a wealth of knowledge with this. Uh, how can people find you online? Yeah, we're easy uh, to find. Um, so I direct uh, an outfit called the Crawford Hydrology Laboratory, and we're uh, at Western Kentucky University. And um, and um, you can find our webpage very easily. Thank you, Chris. We've been with Chris Groves, University Distinguished Professor of Hydrogeology at Western Kentucky University. Appreciate you coming on the podcast. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris, for taking time to give us all great perspective on sinkholes and caves. Wow, what an amazing episode of the GeoTrek podcast. We love taking you to these places to learn about their extreme weather and disaster history and, and just give you more context about things you can even do to help prepare and make yourselves more resilient. 
As I look back at this week's interviews, three things really stand out to me. Number one, I was relieved when Chris Groh shared that sinkholes of this magnitude are very rare. He said in 40 years of living and working in this region, he's only come across two sinkholes of this scale. That's good news and should hopefully be a relief to anyone living in cave country. Sounds like there's a very small chance that you would ever personally encounter a sinkhole like the one under the National Corvette Museum, even if you lived in a karst landscape that supports caves and sinkholes. I also like that Chris explains some of the ways scientists can use to detect potential sinkholes. It makes sense that remote sensing and LIDAR are used. So remote sensing is the science of obtaining geospatial data from a distance, often through the use of satellite imagery or air photos from planes. LIDAR, which stands for light detection and ranging, uses light in the form of a pulsed laser to measure distance to the Earth's surface, according to NOAA. It can pick up small changes in ground elevation and even detect like where depressions are forming, which could indicate caves or sinkholes really in the area. I was really shocked to hear about the method that uses weight to indicate that areas may have caverns under them. But when Chris explained how measuring weight depends on the mass of the object and the mass of the ground beneath them, it really made sense. So for those of you looking to move that dial on the scale, maybe after the holidays, consider taking a trip to Mammoth Cave and maybe measuring your weight above a cavern. You'll be a little bit lighter. These insights from Chris were really one of the three big take-homes from this podcast for me. Number two, a take-home message from Mariah. I thought it was really interesting when she shared that the National Corvette Museum uses micropiles to stabilize the site. She explained them as long rods or poles, almost like telephone poles, but made of steel instead of wood. The sinkhole exhibit displays a micropile and defines a micropile as a small diameter, five to seven inches, steel column, drilled into the ground, filled with grout and reinforcing bars, which bond to the bedrock below the cave. It says that after the micropiles were installed around accessible portions of the spire and around the perimeter of the building, four more micropiles were added around the red spire to fully stabilize it. And an additional 46 micropiles were added under the room of the sky dome. That's a lot of micropiles. And like Mariah said, it said it's probably the safest place around. These adaptations reminded me of the stories last week from Lewisburg, West Virginia, where a, where a frame structure or a caisson was built under the Walmart and Walmart parking lot to stabilize the area as it sits over a massive cavern. This encouraged me that steps can be taken to secure and stabilize locations that are over sinkholes and caves. The key is fasten, really fastening such supports into the deeper bedrock so that they're stable. So you want to fasten to that bedrock deep below so that really nothing's going to move and your site above will be stable. The number three take-home message, and this is probably the biggest take-home message for me from this podcast, is really looking at the extent to which the museum took a bad situation really a massive natural disaster that opened up underneath their, their facility and turned it into something very positive for themselves and their visitors. They've looked at this as an opportunity to educate both children and adults about the science behind sinkholes and took steps to turn lemons into lemonade by using the publicity from this event to their advantage. Consider these facts that I learned in the sinkhole exhibit at the National Corvette Museum. The museum experienced a 65% attendance jump in the year 2014. So keep in mind, the sinkhole happened in February of 2014. That year, attendance was up 65%. They estimate the value from the publicity of the sinkhole is approximately $22 million. Let me say that again. The value from the publicity of this event is around $22 million. Just let that soak in. The video of the sinkhole collapse on the museum's YouTube channel has been viewed 8.5 million times. 
They gained 100,000 Facebook fans shortly after the sinkhole event. They installed three webcams in the Sky Dome so fans could watch the ongoing car recovery live. And they also sold 1,500 jars of sinkhole dirt in the year 2014. So this is really interesting. They attribute the publicity explosion to their engagement in social media. A lot of our recent podcasts over the last three months talk about the use of social media to engage people with extreme weather and disaster forecasting and risk messaging. A sign in the sinkhole exhibit at the Corvette Museum reads this, and I'm going to quote it. Social media has completely changed the game in times of crisis. It has allowed us to share news, photos, and videos with fans, supporters, and the media almost as soon as it happens. It also allows an element of conversation and lightheartedness. While information on the internet can spread like a virus, we are very thankful for the ability to share and spread news directly from the museum so quickly. So they look at this publicity jump not as just a random thing, but they were very intentional and engaging constantly over social media to really grow their audience and use this as an opportunity. So let me throw out these questions to you. If you live and work in a disaster-prone area, have you considered that your biggest opportunity for publicity may come during or after a natural disaster? For a small window of time, the eyes of the world may be on your community, for better or worse. What are ways that you can use an extreme weather event or natural disaster to engage with the world and help them know more about who you are and what you're all about? Where can you install webcams and make live video feeds available for people to watch a blizzard or hurricane strike unfold in your community? How can you document the severity of the event through high watermarks on downtown buildings or signage at a museum or visitor center? Extreme weather and natural disasters become part of a fabric of a community or region, and wise leadership will actually embrace these stories. Try Instead of trying to hide them, embracing them and looking for opportunities to increase visitorship and tourism following such events. I call such tourism, resiliency tourism. I've personally been, been involved with it for more than five years. I live in uh, the, the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history happened in my community. And I started doing research on the 1900 storm and other massive floods in coastal Texas back in 2016, 2017. And visitors used to come all the time. Tourists would come into our library every day and ask, where's the hurricane tour? And the librarian said, we don't have a hurricane tour. And I thought, you know, people are really interested in the, the story behind this. Why don't we launch a hurricane tour to tell people the story? That type of thing is exactly what they've done here at the National Corvette Museum. They've embraced the story. They've thought a lot of people are interested. Let's step out, take initiative, explain the science, and just use it as an opportunity. Anyway, I could go on all day because I love when people turn negative negatives into positives. That's certainly what they've done at the National Corvette Museum. Well, we're out of time for this podcast. Thanks along for coming on the ride this week and last week when we were talking about caves and sinkholes in Kentucky and West Virginia. Next week, we're going to wrap up the 2022 calendar year with a look back at the top 10 memories from the GeoTrek podcast in this past year. And we're going to really uh, go to these places again and, and kind of explore the top 10 moments in the GeoTrek podcast for 2022. So don't miss that episode. But definitely have a Merry Christmas. Have happy holidays with your family and your community. And I'll catch up with you next week on the GeoTrek podcast.